let's turn that over to Jesus. Oh, come on, it's good to be in the house of the Lord. Oh, come on, let's put our hands together. Let's give him a one God, apostolic, Pentecostal hand clap of praise. Hallelujah. Amen. Praise God. It is so good to be in the house of the Lord. What an amazing country. The liberty that we have as Americans. There are people all around the world that would be slaughtered for what we're getting to enjoy here this morning in the house of God. Amen. The liberty to worship true God. Amen. One more time, let's put our hands together and give him a hand clap of praise. Amen. Amen. And uh, I just want to say thank you uh, to this church for your worship, the music team, the greeting team. I mean, everything from point A to right here. You, this is a classy church. You guys have it going on and you are blessed. Amen. And don't you love your pastor and Bishop Sui and Pastor Sui? Amen. It's amazing. Amen. And it's so good to be here this morning, and, uh, and it's so good to have my lovely wife. Amen, Megan. She is my biggest a cheerleader, and man, she has been there for me. She's actually saved my life. Amen. A few different times. Man, when you're looking for a wife, you need to find a wife that is more in love with God than anything else, because if she loves the Lord, if she wants to follow God, sir, you're going to be taken care of. Amen. Amen. And before I get into the word of God, amen, um, you know, I'm going to share my story. But before I do, I just want to tell the young people, your testimony, you don't need a testimony of deliverance from drugs and alcohol to be cool, okay? Your testimony of living for God now, of being in the house of God, of being on the front row, lifting your hands, that is an amazing testimony of your heritage. Hey, man, and I appreciate our young people and their fervor for God. I wish I had your testimony, and I want my kids to have that testimony. Let's put it together for our young people. Do you appreciate them? Amen. These, these young people up here singing and worshiping God. Wow. Hey, man, it is an amazing thing because there's a lot of young people doing a lot of different things. And when I was their age, my God, the things that I was involved with. So kudos and just what an amazing church. Hey, man. Amen. I will get into the word of God because if not, I'll keep going and going and you're standing. And I don't want you to hate me five minutes into the message. Amen. Let's go to the word of God. Hebrews uh, chapter 12 and uh, verse number one. I just want to give a shout out to Brett and Rachel and my recovery community and the Celebrate Recovery community. That's my people. That's my people. That's Iron Brett right there. That dude is incredible, and I love and appreciate them. Amen. Let's go to the Word of God. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse number 1. Wherefore, seeing we are also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin. Hold on now, so they're different? Hey, man, 
Let us lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us. And let us run with patience the race that is set before us. How many know that living for God is a race? It's not a sprint, but it's an endurance it's an endurance event. Amen. It is a marathon. Verse number two, looking unto Jesus, the author. Everybody say he's the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Let's pray together. Father, we love you. Father, I pray in the name of Jesus that the liberty of the Holy Ghost would have its way in this house. I bind every spirit of fear. I bind the spirit of insecurity, God. Father, I pray that the spirit of the Lord would minister in this house, God. Take these liberties of clay. Let me say everything by your divine will, God. In the name of Jesus, I bind every evil spirit. Let the liberty of the Holy Ghost flow in this house. One more time, let's put our hands together and give God a hand clap of praise. Oh, come on, open up your mouth. You got that liberty. You got that freedom to worship him. God is the author and the finisher of your faith. I want to speak to you on this subject, the last word. The last word. God bless you and you may be seated. Amen. The last word. The final say, however you want to put it. You know, we're living in a day and an hour where there's so much uh, communication that is going on and dialogues that are going back and forth continually with social media and text messages and cell phones and just there is a lot of people who are continually uh, arguing back and forth and just a power struggle it seems like all the time. I mean, my goodness, you can just be on Facebook or social media for five minutes and you'll see these threads where people... People are just having it all out, man. Like they just went, they just have to have the last word, man. I mean, they just need to get their thought in, no matter if it's right or wrong. They just want to leave their mark. They just want to argue and get in the last word. Does anybody in here know somebody in your life? Don't be looking around, but man, they just gotta have the last word. I mean, it doesn't matter what it is. They just wanna argue and they just wanna get the final word in anything. And uh, and uh, and you seen my children here this morning. I got a couple girls and a boy and I won't tell you which girl it is, but man, she loves to test me. And she just wants to have the last word. Hey, man, strong personality. I'm raising a leader. Hey, man, that's what I'm telling myself anyway. But she just always wants to get in the last word. And, man, even my dog, man, I got a Siberian Husky, and he's my running partner. And, man, that breed is just such a mouthy breed. And I'll tell him to go do something or this and that, and he will literally row, 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 just want to argue and say a bunch of things as he is exiting the room because he just wants to get in the last word. Hey, man, but like I said before, you know, we're living in a day and time where there's just like a power struggle from both sides. Amen. And and the last word or the final word, if, if you were to Google it, it says that the final word that it is, 
the last word or the final word in a discussion or an argument or a disagreement. They are the one who wins or makes the final decision. And how many know that there is an argument and a, a disagreement that is taking place every single day over your soul, over your family? There is a fight in a, and there are contenders who are fighting for your family, for your heritage, for everything that you hold true. There is an argument taking place every single day. And, and my story, and I love that you're doing this uh, sermon series. My story starts many years ago, about 38 years ago. I'll be 39 this year in St. Louis, Missouri. I was born to James and Christine Savage, uh, and, and my dad was a construction worker. He was a hod carrier and a laborer in the union, uh, and he carried, uh, you know, like brick and mortar up a bunch of scaffolding all day long, and he was a hard worker. And my mom was a uh, manager at, uh, at a grocery store over the salad bar. And the little bit that I can remember of my childhood was pretty good. Mom and dad did stuff with us, but then dad became disabled. Dad, dad began to get some issues in his body from all the hard labor he was doing and became a, a disabled. And then my mom got MS and, and had epilepsy as well. And then like into, into my teenage years, both of my parents were disabled. And, uh, and I grew up in a home in an environment where, you know, they partied every weekend. You know, my uncles and aunts, they would all get together every weekend and they'd be drinking alcohol and having parties and smoking. And, you know, so when I was growing up, I just kind of thought that that was normal. I mean, that was status quo. That was the way that that things were. And so I was uh, exposed to a lot of those things as a young person. And so I can remember um, at the age of nine or 10, like smoking my first cigarette at the age of uh, nine or 10, I began to find drugs in the house and, uh, and marijuana in the house and, uh, and all these things. And my parents would be having these parties and they would send me to go get drinks for them while they were partying. And I would sneak the drinks. And I remember at the age of 11, and 12 thinking, man, this is so cool, you know, and, uh, and this is just the way that my life is going to be. And so I got involved with drugs and alcohol at a very young age. And like I mentioned before, you know, uh, my uh, parents were disabled. And into my teen years, when I was around 14 and 15, I, I began finding prescription uh, pain medicine all over the house. I mean, I was finding Xanax. I was finding Oxycontin. I was finding all of these opiates and all of these types of drugs that, that I began to steal. And I was way too smart as a young person. I, I wanted to find them. And, and so it just consumed my life. I just wanted to, you know, because in school I was very insecure. You know, I wasn't the cool kid. I just wanted to fit in. And I found out that if I did these things, I didn't care anymore. And that I, I felt like I fit in. And I started to believe all these lies that if I drank and I was the class clown and I was this and that, that I was in the cool crowd. But boy, was I fooled. And. Uh, and I got into a uh, rave scene for many years where I was involved in DJing and underground rave parties where I was taking ecstasy and acid uh, and, and 
mushrooms and all the psychedelics and things like that all the time. And I traveled around the Midwest doing these uh, raves and things like that. And I was a nightclub DJ and a rave DJ. And so I just thought that that I was gonna be famous one day, that I was gonna be this, you know, this famous DJ and this stuff, it just, you know, it was taking a, a, a root in my a heart. Uh, but the whole time I was just searching the world. I was searching for something that was trying to give me an identity. It was trying to give me a purpose because I was trying to fill that hole in my heart. I was trying to fill that hole in my heart. It's a God-sized hole uh, and only God can really fill that hole. And I was searching the world over and over and over for it. But at the end of the day, at night, when my head hit the pillow, I was empty. And I was a broken, a young man. And I had so many hurts and wounds in my life that it just, it ate me up for years. And I got heavily addicted to the prescription uh, uh, pain pills, the Oxycontin and the opiates. It just began to take a hold of my life. I began getting into a lot of trouble as a young man. And I, and they locked me up in the juvenile center. I was involved, I was on juvenile probation at the age of 14 and I never got off even as an adult until I was around 28 years old. And so I was wrapped up in the system. And so, and just uh, the opiates just consumed my life. And I, I had tried to get off of them and I was going to this rehab and that, and that rehab and all these places, but nothing ever worked. And, uh, and, and one of my counselors was like, you need to go to a methadone clinic. You know, you're addicted to all these uh, opiates and things like that. You need to go to a methadone clinic. And, and if you don't know what that is, it's an, another drug that's a synthetic opiate that they give you in place of the opiates that you are so you don't go through withdrawal. But it turns out that it was more addictive than even the pills that I was taking. And I got on a really high dose. And then, and then I was standing in line at the methadone clinic in, uh, in, in, in downtown St. Louis every day to get my dose. And I begin to rub shoulders with all the local heroin addicts and all... And, and all of that, uh, the heroin addicts in St. Louis. And I had always said, you know what? I would never stick a needle in my arm. Even as a drug addict, I'm like, man, I'll smoke this or that, da, da, da. But I would never stick a needle in my arm. I would never do anything like that. But you know what? I was hanging around those people and you are who you hang out with. Show me your friends and I will show you what your future will look like very soon. Amen. And it wasn't long, and I was sticking needles uh, in my arms and the opiates. It just began to consume my life. I mean, that's, that's all I did. That's all I thought about. I began to just walk the streets, and I was in and out of, you know, like treatment centers. I was getting in, in trouble with the law. You know, I had got, uh, and I got caught and convicted of, of, of three different felonies in the state of Missouri for stealing and for forgery and for opiates. And they put me on, on probation 
And I tried to walk down the probation, but I kept failing drug test after drug test after drug test. And eventually they said, you know what? You're not going to change. And so they gave me my backup time and they sent me to the Missouri Department of Corrections. And I did time in prison in Missouri. And I got out of prison about a year and a half later around then. And just my life, you know what? I didn't use drugs when I was in prison, but I never got any recovery. I never got any healing in my life. I never got any healing in my heart, and that was me in 2008 in Bonterre, Missouri, amen, where they still execute people in the, uh, um, there at that uh, prison in 2008, and, and that was me. My identity was 137474. That is who I became. Every day I had to stand up in the morning and say that number during count time, and every, and every evening as well, and I took on that identity that I'm a criminal, that I'm no good, that I'm a drug addict, that I'm a thief, and that there's never going to be any way, I'm never going to be anything different than 137474. And man, it just took a hold of me. And I walked down and I got out of that prison and I was, you know, I didn't use in prison, but my life, you know, I... You know, like I was clean uh, for a few months after I got out of prison, but I started to hang around the wrong people again. Started to associate, you know, with the wrong crowd again. And I was white knuckling it. I wasn't using, but man, I was just white. Like every day was just a struggle, uh, you know, to not drink or to use or anything like that. And that was my life for the next few months after that. And so... And so I started to get around those wrong people in the crowd and it wasn't long and all that, all that clean time I had, I started to use because it made me feel comfortable. And my life, it just began to go down. I started stealing again. All of my family members, I had robbed my mom, my dad, my sisters. I had destroyed every relationship in, in my life. My family wouldn't even allow me in their homes anymore. I mean, I just found myself in the deepest, in the darkest, and just a bad season in my life. And they kicked me out of the house and I was homeless. I was the guy that you would see on the side of the road begging people for money at the side of the highway exit. That was me asking people for money there off of Highway 55 right off of downtown St. Louis. That is what my life had become. And so I had been through all different types of treatment centers up until that point. And at that point, I was living in an abandoned house. And my life was just in shambles. And for the first time in my life, I can remember sitting there crying and saying, God, if you're real, make a way out of this for me. And I can't say that God spoke in some large audible voice. I didn't see a burning bush, but I promise you there, a heroin addict, a dope fiend, a criminal on the street and in, in an abandoned house. When I cried out to Jesus, his spirit showed up right there. Right there in the middle of my mess. When you call on the name of Jesus, he will show up. It don't matter who you are. It don't matter where you come from. When God sees a humble and broken and contrite spirit, he will show up. Hallelujah. Because God resists the proud, but he gives grace unto the humble. Woo! 
And right there in a dirty crack house, the Holy Ghost showed up to comfort me. And I didn't receive the Holy Ghost then, but I promise you this, I knew that there was a God and I knew that he was real. And for the first time I said, all right, you know what? I had a little bit of encouragement. And the next day, my father, who had been trying to talk me out of using and trying to get me into other centers, my dad was continually following me and pursuing me and pleading with me and begging with me to change. Michael, you need to get into another center. You need to get some healing in your life. And so many times I had just shut the door in his face. And just because all I could think about was I was a criminal, there's not, it's never going to change. And, uh, and so the next day, my dad found me on the street and he had my old cell phone number that I couldn't even pay the bill for anymore. And he said, there was a young man in Illinois in a treatment center named Lifeline Connect in Champaign-Urbana, Illinois. And, uh, and he said that he told my dad he had been praying for me. You see, because I had been in another program with this young man about two years before that, hadn't spoken to him in years. And he had made it into that program and God knew my prayer in that house, and he, and he quickened that young man's mind and, and put me on their heart, and, and he began to reach out, and my dad gave me the number for Randy Brown. Hey Amen, that's a name right there, isn't it? And so I called uh, Randy Brown at Lifeline Connect, and I said, man, you know, I want to get into Lifeline. And he started asking me all these questions, you know, and I'm trying to lie. I'm trying to manipulate. I'm trying to feed him all this junk. You know, I just wanted to get off of the streets, you know, and he started to call me out. He started to hold me accountable. He said, if you really want to get into Lifeline, uh, uh, to Lifeline Connect, you call me every day at this time. I said, man, I don't even have a phone. He said, well, if you want to get your dope every day, I bet you'll uh, go and get your dope every day, won't you? I said, man, he's right. And man, we need a man of God in our life. We need a pastor in our life. We need somebody that can look us in the face without us getting all up in our feelings and all offended and speak the truth because they love us. We need a pastor. We need a man of God. We need the ministry in our life. Man, it took me a while to figure that one out, but they got your best interest in heart. They don't make a million dollars off this thing. Hey, man, they love people. Hey, man, that's nowhere. I ain't even using my notes anymore. Hey, man, that's got to be from the Lord. Hey, man. But, you know, I, I, I got on a Greyhound bus and all I had was a little bag of clothes and I made it to Lifeline Connect. And I remember it was a Tuesday night and I walked into the Apostolic Church and woo, I had been through a lot of stuff. I've seen a lot of crazy things, but it didn't prepare me for the Apostolic Church, man. My goodness, I walked in and service was rocking. I can remember one of my first uh, few services, I was standing there and boom, there went somebody that was just running around the church. I was like, oh my gosh, should I start running too? Like, oh man. Because where I was from, if somebody run, I mean, it's the police. You better start running too. 
But man, they were just worshiping God. And man, it was amazing. And so uh, the parole board in Missouri gave me a one-year pass. And, uh, and they gave me a travel permit to come to Lifeline Connect. And I can remember I was there for about a couple months. See, at first, I just really wanted off the streets, you know. I just, you know, I did want to change in my life. But I can remember my uh, pastor, Pastor D.L. Rogers, for the first time, I remember hearing the word of God and it really penetrating my heart. And he was preaching. Preaching on uh, James uh, chapter 4 and, and verse number uh, 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 10, amen, where it says to humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. And I remember him preaching on humility and really getting real. And I can remember for the first time in my life, I wanted to change for Michael Savage. Uh, I didn't want to do it uh, for my mom or for my dad or for the parole board or, or, or for the judge. And I went to that altar and for the first time in my life, I lift my hands up. I said, God, I need you in my heart. I don't I want to do this thing without you. And God filled me with the greatest gift uh, that the world cannot give you. The world cannot take it away. Uh, he filled me with the baptism of the Holy Ghost uh, and with fire. Uh, and I had a purpose in God erased 137474. Uh, and I was blood bought. Uh, he gave me a new name and a new identity. This is my story. Woo! That's the beginning of my story. Amen. And every saint of God has a future. Every saint has a story. And God wants to be the author of that story. Amen. And God just lit a fire in my life and in my heart. Uh, I was in that program for a year. God did a lot of miracle working power. I did a lot of recovery work because, man, I had years of emotional, like, man, like, could you imagine, you know, like when Jesus called Lazarus out of the tomb, he said, Lazarus, come forth. And poof. Here you go. You got this dead guy that's just walking around. And the Bible says that he was all wrapped up in the grave clothes. And that was me. I was alive. I was born again. But man, did I have some grave clothes on. I had some, some emotional uh, uh, healing and things that I really needed some healing for. And so I'm so thankful for the recovery ministry for allowing me to experience real healing in my life. And I was in that program for a year. And the parole board called, and they said, hey, it's time for Michael Savage to come back to Missouri. And we were all like, hey, let's just, you know, is there any way that we can transfer the parole over to Illinois? And we tried. We took it to the judge. We did everything we could. But at the end of the day, it was just the will of God for me to move back to Missouri. And so I moved back to Missouri and I was there for five years. And during that uh, five years, God began to do some amazing things in my life. He called me to the ministry. God gave me a burden for my family. None of my family were in church. Uh, and I was living with my grandmother. And, uh, and I got... Uh, uh, two sisters and a brother, and I just began to pray for them. And I was praying and I was fasting and it took about a year, but they started to come around because everybody thought, okay, he's got a year clean, it's not real. You know, I think they, they really wanted to see some traction and, and about 
Uh, six months went by, and man, I'm just praying and believing because sometimes it takes a while when you're coming against those strongholds. You gotta hold your faith. You gotta hold the line. You gotta speak life. You gotta believe it. You gotta show up. You gotta love them. You gotta love them. You gotta love them. You gotta love them. You gotta love the love of Jesus right into them. And it took a while, but I baptized my mom in the name of Jesus. My dad got baptized in the name of Jesus and got the Holy Ghost. Uh, my sister got baptized in the name of Jesus. My niece got baptized. Uh, yes, sir. And God began to do a work in my family. And my younger brother was an addict exactly like me. And I began to pray and fast for him. And it took a while. And I finally got him to come to church. One night, it was a Sunday night service. Boom. And they were doing cardboard testimonies. And man, he came in there and God just began to work on him. And, uh, and he tells the testimony of he was standing there and some guy just ran by and he was like, oh my goodness, what has gotten into these people? And he said, and I looked around and he went to look at me and it was me. I was running around the church. Hey man, because I was excited. New life had been poured into me and I, and I wasn't ashamed and God was working in my life. And that night, my, my brother got the Holy Ghost. Hey, man, and God began to change his life. And he went to Lifeline Connect. And, and my brother is still clean to this day. He's living in Champaign-Urbana. Got a beautiful family. That's his story. Amen. And God, if he can do it for me, he can do it for anybody. Amen. Because the Bible says that God is no respecter of a persons. Amen. And things were going amazing, man. I was living on the summit. I was living on the top. I was living just awesome, man. God blessed me with the best, amazing partner, my wife, Megan. And just, you know, it, it was an amazing chapter of my life, you know. And so, you know, I was, uh, I was getting to share my testimony and things were going great. So, and it was on New Year's Eve one night and I was in a car accident. I was on my way to a watch night service in church and we were in a car accident and I messed up my back and I started going to the doctor and I had told all my doctors, look, I'm a recovering opiate addict, never under any circumstance. I don't care what I say to you, do not give me opiates, ever. You need to tell on yourself in a time of good in your head. Hey man, because it'll save you later on. And so, and so I had told them that and, uh, and so I was seeing a, a nurse practitioner and she said, look, I know you're in a lot of pain. I can give you a drug that's not an opiate. It's not a narcotic. And so she gave me a drug called Tramadol. And I didn't know any better. And the doctor said it was fine. And I started taking that drug. And, and chemically, it's not an opiate. But it does hit the opiate receptors in the brain exactly like an opiate. And I started taking that stuff. And, and God was using me in the ministry. And I was sharing my story. And then I ran out of that prescription early. And I felt myself like I was going through withdrawal. And I was like, oh, no. And I just felt like the devil was like a checkmate. I got you. And I started hiding it, and the shame and the guilt just started eating me up inside. Here I was, somebody that's supposed to be a man of God, supposed to be a preacher, out here sh 
sharing the gospel was secretly addicted to some pills called tramadol and just the shame and the guilt was eating me up inside and I didn't know what to do anymore. And the biggest mistake that I made was not telling anybody, was thinking that everybody was going to judge me and I kept my mouth shut because that's what the devil wants you to do. He wants you to shut your mouth. He wants you to isolate. He wants to get you away from the church. He doesn't want you to have a man or a woman of God speaking truth into your life. And, it, and he began to speak all those lies in my mind and my heart, and I began to believe him. And just the shame and the guilt, I felt like such a hypocrite and such a failure. And the depression and the anxiety and the fear, it just drove me down a down a. A, a steep cliff, man. My wife was six months pregnant uh, with our start of family. And he, here I was, I felt like I threw it all away. I felt like a Peter, man. I felt like I had betrayed God and I just wanted it all to end. And I relapsed, man. I took a bunch of money out of the bank and, uh, and I started to go to these other doctors and they were giving me other things and I was just on a suicide mission. I, and I went to downtown St. Louis and I couldn't even handle it anymore. I just wanted it all to end. And I found some heroin and I got high and my wife found me on the floor in our apartment with a needle in my arm, a, a blue as can be. And she began to call on the name of Jesus and she began to say, God, save my husband in this process. It was a nightmare in our life. And the paramedics, uh, uh, they showed up and, and they got me back up and they revived me and got me into the hospital. And I signed myself right out of the hospital and I went back and did it again. And then a couple days later, I did it again. And just, I was just a wreck. I was on a mission. I didn't want to be here anymore. I just, my life, just the hurt and the pain was just a, too much for me to handle. And, and there is so many overdoses within a, a short amount of time on the worst overdose. My wife had just kind of went and found my dad and my family and I was out of control. I had already... I went to the hospital, I had aspirated, I had uh, fluid in my lungs, I had, uh, and I had pneumonia in my lungs as well, and I could barely breathe, and I'm just on this death mission, not even wanting, just not thinking there was another chance for me, that I blew it, that I gave it up, that there's no way that God could ever do anything with this life ever again. And, uh, and I went and got a bunch of dope and my dad was beating on my door. My father was beating on my door and I opened that door and I said, dad, you're terrible. I called him every name that I could think of. I brought up every situation from my childhood that I thought I tried to get my father to leave me. I, 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 I tried everything, but that love of a father kept beating on that door. The love of a dad kept beating on that door. And, and I shut the door. And I went in the bathroom and I, and I closed the door and I stuck my back up against the door and my feet up against the bathroom vanity. And I said, nobody's gonna be able to get to me this time. And I shot that dope and that's the last thing I could remember. But whenever I woke up in the hospital, I would later uh, find out that my dad went and got a key from the apartment uh, manager and he got in that apartment and he said he was... Uh, he was trying to open that door and trying to open that door. And he said, God, help me open this door. And he said, it was the hand of God. He got the door open. He pulled me out. He gave me CPR. And I'm telling you, your father is pursuing you. 
the love of God will never give up on you. The love of a dad, the love of a father will follow after you. It doesn't matter how messy it is. It doesn't matter what's going on in your life. The love of God, the love of a father will continue to pursue you. And man, they pulled me out of there. And the paramedics, I would find out later, were sick of coming to my house. They had been there so many different times within that past week. They had gave me three or four shots of Narcan, and they give up at four. And that's an opiate antagonist where somebody that's overdosing, you know, you know, they give them this thing to bring them out of it, and they gave me the maximum amount of dose. And my dad said that they said that they found a faint heartbeat. Hey, man, my heart was still beating. My lungs were still working and they took me out of there and I went to the hospital and I was in the ICU. If you would put that picture up. I was in the ICU for nine days on a ventilator. I mean, that was me and my family was coming. My wife was there every day. She was praying, she was believing, she was, a journaling, she was writing, God, I know you're gonna bring him out of this. And I had a family, a church family up here down in St. Louis area that was praying and believing and fasting. And I was in the ICU on a ventilator for nine days. And this is a chapter of my story. Not every story is beautiful. Amen. A lot of stories have a lot of different things in them. They have a lot of twists and a lot of turns, but this is a chapter of my story I'm not proud of, but it's my story. It's mine. And, and when I woke up by the grace of God, they didn't know if I was gonna have some, some stuff going on with my brain or anything like that. But when I got up out of that coma after nine days on a ventilator, you know, I had some decisions to make. Uh, and, and just, you know, man, uh, I start to call uh, uh, Randy Brown again. And I said, I wanna come back to Lifeline. And he said, if you're serious, you need to go somewhere else for a few weeks and get cleaned up. And I did that. Uh, and my wife, uh, she came to that uh, uh, um, that uh, treatment center after the two weeks and she got me in, in Lifeline Connect, I called and they said, it's time to come home. I just want you to know that the church will always welcome you home. It don't matter how far away from God you've been. They love you in the house of God. The reconciliation and the restoration of the Holy Ghost is in the church. Hallelujah. And so I went home and I went home and I, I, I made it back to Champaign-Urbana and Pastor and Sister Rogers were on their way to pick me up. We had stayed the night at the Eastland Suites and, and my wife was dropping me off and she's six months pregnant. We don't know what our future looks like. And we're sitting there in the lobby and Pastor and Sister Rogers were on their way to pick me up. And I just wanted to run. I, I did not want to face everybody, the shame and the guilt. I felt like I failed everybody. But you know what? And I didn't want to see everybody, but the truth is, is those were the people that were my biggest cheerleaders. Those were the people that were on my side. Those were the people that were the biggest encouragement in my life was in the church. They ain't out there in the world. But it was the ministry that beckoned me to come home. And I was sitting in that uh, uh, lobby in, in the Eastland Suites. And there was this lady that was busting tables in there. And man, I am literally thinking about just running. 
Like just the shame and the guilt and, and the condemnation and the lies of the enemy. I just didn't wanna face my pastor. Like I felt like I failed the church. I felt like I failed the people in my life. And I just, man, I just wanted to run. And this lady was busting tables and she came by my tables and, uh, and she said, how are you today? And I said, I'm not doing too good. And she looked at me, this sweet old lady. And she said, do you know what today is? And I said, no. She goes, today is the only day of the year that says something. And I was like, you know, like I'm on my mind. I'm like, what? You know, she said, it's the only day of the year that says something. Today is March 4th and you need to march forth. And right there in that moment, it may be a little thing, but the encouragement and the quickening of the Holy Ghost rose something up in me and gave me the courage to face my fear and to march forth. And I encourage you today, I don't know what you're facing. I don't know what giant it is, but you can march forth. God can restore you. He can restore your marriage. He can restore your family. He can bring your children home. Keep marching forth because God gets the last word. Oh, come on, let's open up our mouth in this house. March forth, saint of God. God is in this place. Who is holding the pen in your life? This is my story. You see, because there is a two authors in this world and there's two different stories and you get to decide who is writing that story because God is the author and the finisher of our faith, but the devil is also the author of confusion. He's the father of lies and he has his own narrative that he wants to write into your life. Uh, he wants to write the lies that you'll never be any better, that you'll always be stuck, that you'll always stay in the same spot. Uh, but there's another offer, amen. Whose hand does your life, who has the pen of your life? Amen, amen. And it's up to us, like Brother Brown says, you get to decide. You get to decide. Amen. Amen. And it's not too late. Amen. We can march forth. This is a chapter of my story. And now God has restored me. God, I am... I. I had five years clean then, but in March, I celebrated seven years. Uh, amen. And let me tell you what, the latter rain is greater than the former rain. Uh, the restoration, the healing, the power, my family, my children, God will restore. Amen. And God has given me a a, a beautiful family. Will you put that picture of my family up there real quick? Amen. That's Eden, Amaya, and Summit, and my wife. Amen. And, and you know what? When I started this journey, I was homeless, but almost three years ago, God, God, God blessed us. Amen. That's our house. That ain't some prop, baby. Oh, man. See what God can do, because if you allow him to, God will get the last word. As it as the musicians come, hey man, you get to decide. Who's, whose hand are you putting the pen in? God wants to write a beautiful story. You see, because if it was up to the devil, if I left it up to Satan, it would have ended there. Why don't you put the ICU picture back up for me, brother?
You see, because the story, it could have ended a lot differently. It could have ended like that. But the crazy thing is, is in the house of God, in the economy of God, there's a scripture. That's Romans 8, 28. And it says, all things, everybody say all things. God never wastes a failure if you put it in his hands. All things work together for good to them that love God and who are the called according to his purpose. And I got to make the decision. I took the pen out of the enemy's hand. I took the pen out of the devil's hand. And I said, God, I surrender. I submit. I don't know what it looks like going forward, but God, you can have this heart. This is a, my story. Your story's not over. There's a surprise, a twist at the end. Hey, man, if you give it to God, and I just want to encourage somebody, stand up, march forth, and don't give in, amen. You know, in the Navy SEALs, the baddest soldiers out there, they say, in the Navy, I'm sure you've all heard of the Navy SEALs, right? Amen, they're bad to the bone, man. They're assassins, man. They do a lot of dirty work. They can swim, they can run, they are top notch. And, and to become a Navy SEAL, you have to endure and conquer what's called Hell Week. Hell Week is a week where they are subjected to the worst possible training that you can imagine. They are sleep deprived for days and for days and for, and for days. They have to run miles. They have to swim miles. They have to pick up this boat and carry it for days and there. They drive these guys unto the very end to where they're about to just lose their minds. And it's called Hell Week. And there on the beach, they have what's called the bell. And if you quit, if you decide, you know what? This ain't for me, that I can't endure this. You gotta march up in front of everybody and you gotta ring the bell. That's a good wife right there. Just fix my jacket, amen. But they're pushed until the very end and the instructors that are teaching them, that are, uh, that are driving them, they say, hey, you can quit if you want. All you gotta do is walk up and ring the bell. You have to admit defeat in front of everybody. And they are driving these guys and they get down in their face and they say, hey, you ain't tough enough to be a Navy SEAL. You're not good enough. All you got to do is quit and ring the bell. Hey, we got a hot shower in here. It's day number six. It's day number five. It's cold. They got hypothermia. They are driving these guys into the end. And there's guys every now and again that just walk up and I quit. I give up. It's not for me. And there's guys that they push until the very, uh, very end while they're up there saying, hey, we got a buffet inside, we got hot coffee, we got cake and ice cream, amen. And some people, they said, you know what? It's too hard for me. I can't do it anymore. And they want comfort in their life and they, they tap out and they ring the bell. 
It's kind of like the rich young ruler in the scripture where he came running to Jesus, good master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said, sell what you have and give it to the poor and take up your cross and follow me. And he said, man, I have done everything. I have been in the house of God. I have kept the commandments, but he would not give up a control. And he, he tapped out. And sometimes living for God is like that, where the enemy is tempting you and he's drawing you. And he said, man, you don't have to be in the church. You don't have to be in service. You don't tap out and you can do whatever you want. You can have cake and ice cream. You can do whatever you want if you just ring, ring the bell. And I don't know how many people I've seen since living for God that were so close to their miracle, so close to their breakthrough, so close to the finish line, so close they're right there. And they, they, they ring the bell. Saint of God, don't ring the bell. Don't quit. Don't give up on God. Amen. You know, but whenever I was uh, writing this message, you know, the Holy Ghost spoke to me and he said, Michael, you know, I've heard you ring that bell. I've heard you quit on me. I've heard you break your promises and walk away from me. I've heard you ring that bell. I've heard you ring it. But I just want to encourage somebody out there that maybe you have failed. Maybe you have quit. Maybe you have given up on your ministry, on your family, on whatever you fill in the blank. Uh, I got a word for you. The bell works in reverse because the bell is a universal sign of surrender saying I'm done, that I'm not gonna do it anymore. Uh, so I just want to encourage somebody out there that you need to ring the bell on addiction. Uh, you need to ring the bell on that failure. You need to ring the bell on quitting. Uh, you need to ring the bell because God has a purpose for your life uh, because God gets the last word. Let freedom ring. Let freedom ring. There's liberty in this house. It's better in the house of God than it is out in the world. Amen. Amen. As everybody stands in this house, I just want to encourage you. Hey, if you would put that ICU picture up real quick. That was the lowest point, one of the lowest points in my life. The lowest point of elevation in this country is Death Valley. It's in Southern California. It's the lowest point of elevation in the lower 48 states. But I got a word for somebody, the highest point of elevation, it's not that far away. Mount